Welcome to New Hope's teaching podcast. This is an excerpt from our Sunday morning service. Visit newhopepdx.org teaching for notes, worship, and church announcements. Stay up to date with our teaching series and events by downloading our app. Just text New Hope PDX app to 77977. Enjoy this week's lesson. My first job as a pastor was in Madison, Wisconsin, where I served for almost 18 years. Uh, when I first began, it was, it was a, a smaller church, smaller staff, and a couple months in, the lead pastor there asked me if I wanted to speak on a Sunday. And, and I, I was young pastor, uh, but I since I had some speaking gifts and was excited at that opportunity to kind of speak into the big room. I remember as I approached that day, I put a ton of work into it, and I was both excited and really nervous. Our, our lead pastor uh, was, is a really exceptional communicator, and it was, it was large shoes to fill, but I, I was excited. So I remember that day. I, I remember like it was yesterday, but it was a long time ago, and I got up, and I, I had my opening, and I got going, and I was feeling good about things, and then something <laughs> totally surprising happened. At the very back of the sanctuary, um, I was a youth pastor. The students and uh, the youth leaders uh, begin to stand up randomly. And as I would speak and uh, tell a joke or give a story or provide a point, they would hold up cards with numbers on them. <laughs> so, you know, here I am trying to like keep my mind about me and, and preach at the same time seeing this happening. And, and uh, they were grading me like on, and, and they were very generous and it was meant as a form of, of support, uh, but also unexpected. And I got to admit, um, I kind of liked it. <laughs> and that's, that, that kind of captures that idea of, uh, of how we do life, uh, of that we're performing uh, for an audience, we're performing for a, a grade if you will. I, I really in love every four years watching the Winter Olympics, summer as well, but really like the Winter Olympics for some reason. And one of the things that I only watch at the Winter Olympics but love it is, is ice skating. And I'm sure that you've had opportunity to see ice skating in the Winter Olympics. And it's just incredible. These, these solitary skaters are sometimes, you know, pair skating, and they just put, you know, years and years of their life into what comes down to like a three-minute uh, performance. And, and then we have the judges, right? So they're being judged on every iota of their performance to whether they smiled and their outfits and their music and whether they hit their timings. And then they're, they're doing these ridiculous jumps on, on ice. If they do well, they get a positive point. And if they make any mistakes, they, they get points taken off. You know, oh, that was uh, only a triple axle, not a quad. <laughs> I'm just like, but it was a triple axle. It's incredible to watch them perform. And yet when they crash and land, you kind of like grimace inside because you know points are being uh, taken off. Uh, at the end, they, there's that moment where, where they're standing, often holding flowers and, um, and waiting for the scores to come in. And if it's a great score, they're elated and there's smiles and they jump. And if it's a bad score, they're, they're crushed. And this is kind of how our world works. Uh, we're performers. We perform for one another. We perform for God, and then we wait for the scores to come in. And if they're good, we're elated. If they're not, we're crushed. And to be honest, even though this is a horrible way to live, we kind of like it. But ultimately, to live like this is a prison. 
It's uh, what I would call a prison of performance. And God, in his mercy and his love for us, wants to set us free from that prison of performance. We're third week in a series called Resurrecting Church, a study of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Uh, The church, more than any time in my lifetime, needs to be what it was created to be. Uh, There's a great need in our world and its brokenness and division for the church to step in and be the body of Christ as, as we are called and created to be. Paul's letter to the Ephesians gives us that playbook. It gives us a revelation of what the church is meant to be, written to the churches in Asia Minor, uh, just as applicable to the church at, at New Hope. It's meant to be read as a story to be stepped into and to be lived out. Our story is part of this much greater story where God's the showrunner and Jesus is the lead actor, and yet we, we all play really vital roles. Uh, Last week, we looked at Paul's, what I call Paul's eye-opening prayer, that Paul is praying for the churches, our church, to see ourselves from a different perspective, to see ourselves as God sees us. And I paraphrased that prayer, and we we handed it out for the folks that were here, and it's available online for folks who couldn't make it. And I challenged you last week to pray that that prayer over one another, and, and I continue to give you that challenge. We desperately need the eyes of our heart to be enlightened. This week, we're going to launch into Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. If, you, if you're coming in the series and maybe you knew a little bit about Ephesians, but not much, uh, if there's one passage from the letter you know, it's Ephesians 2, uh, 1 through 10. That's because it's probably one of the, the most important passages in the entire letter. So I can't wait to dig into it with you. Uh, so Nathan will be reading uh, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Before Nathan reads, let me just say a quick prayer. Uh, God, we as, we, as we said last week, we so need your spirit to open our eyes uh, to who we are, to who, how you see us, to who we, we were created to be in Christ, saints, uh, uh, with, with, with a hopeful calling and, 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 and vast riches at our disposal and resurrection power. We need our eyes open to this so we can be the church we were created and called to be God. So I just pray, even as we're listening today to, to this Ephesians 2 passage and we dig into it, that you continue to illuminate uh, our minds and our hearts to, to get us to see beyond where we are now to who you're calling us to become. Uh, thank you uh, for the story that Nathan's about to read that we're step, stepping into and, and called to live. Uh, I just pray that as we listen to it, uh, your word would come to life in our hearts and our minds and our community. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Nathan, take it away. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have that you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is the word of the Lord.
This passage is the, the body of Paul's letter. It's, it's a natural continuation of chapter one. So let me remind you how chapter one ended. It ended after the prayer with this doxology uh, where, where Jesus uh, is called the head of the church. And, and, and Paul tells us that Jesus rules right now over every authority, power, and dominion in this age and the age to come. Uh, scholars think that these are, are names of like evil forces and, and spiritual evil entities in the world, that they're out there and they're powerful, but Jesus reigns above all of them and he is the, the head of the church. He sits on the throne and his church, as we follow him, we're actively engaged in this cosmic battle between good and evil. Uh, chapter two, what Nathan just read, uh, and it's in two parts, we'll deal with the second part next week. It gives us the script for the story we're supposed to live into. It gives us the script for this, uh, for this cosmic battle. Verses one through seven, and Nathan read through verse 10, verses one through seven is one sentence in the Greek. So Paul's writing a lot of long sentences in the letter of Ephesians. Remember, God is the showrunner directing the, act, the action, and Jesus is the lead actor. So let's, let's break it down a little bit and talk through the passage a bit. Verses uh, 1 through 3 uh, reminds followers of Jesus of our past. So, so verses 1 through 10 are kind of, as they give us a script for the story, kind of a panorama view. So Paul deals with our past and our present and our future. So verses 1 through 3 are looking into the past. Paul repeats this phrase twice. Uh, we were dead in our transgressions and sins. Uh, he puts that in verses 1 through 3, and then later in verse 5 for emphasis. What's repeated is important. So Paul wants us to understand that our past state, apart from Jesus, is dead people. Uh, he has a cute little turn of phrase that we used to live as dead people. What were we apart from Jesus? We were dead. That's what Paul wants us to know. I don't know if you remember a movie, I think it was in the 80s, um, called Weekend at Bernie's. Anybody remember that? You can raise your hand at home if you're with, with somebody. It's, I think there was a Weekend at Bernie's too as well. I don't know. Very simple pr uh, premise. I haven't seen it in a long time, so I should probably not recommend it. But I, I remember it being pretty funny. And there's two guys, and Bernie is kind of the house owner at where they're at, uh, and he dies unexpectedly. And I can't remember all the reasons why they, they tried to fake that he was alive, but that was the comedic feature of the film, that they put Bernie in a hat and glasses and clothes. And he's, he's dead, but they would put him on the couch and carry him around, and, and people would wave at him and have conversations with him. So that was, that was the deal of Weekend at Bernie's. And I chuckled thinking about Paul's words, because that's what it is like to try to live apart from Jesus. We're literally, as Paul said, dead people trying uh, to live. Paul uh, says that the reason we are dead people is, is a, it's complex. And the complexity is that we play a role in it. And then these evil forces in the universe play a role in it as well. And Paul talks about both. He says, we used to follow the ways of the world and the ways of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. This is a reference to Satan. And Satan in the New Testament uh, is, it means one thing. Satan in, in, in the Old Testament means one thing. In the New Testament means another. In the New Testament, Satan is this personification of evil, the one who is leading these, these evil forces. When the human story began in the garden, go back to Genesis 1, we weren't created uh, with the existence of no evil. Evil was already there. And we know that because the serpent appears and there's, there's already evil on the scene that predates our creation in the garden. So we're born into kind of this cosmic struggle between good and evil. And Paul's bearing that out. The same is true today. He says, this spirit is now at work in those who are disobedient. So yes, evil exists. Uh, evil is enticing us. 
and trying to deceive us and seduce us, but we, all of us, myself and you, are complicit in it as well, and Paul's very clear in that. We choose to walk away uh, from God as well. And, and Paul says you, and again, as a reminder, I talked about it in week one, when we see you, it's almost always plural. And so our, our friends from the South, y'all, you can just put y'all in there. All of us live this way at one time. So this story Paul is painting is a universal story. Uh, evil exists, it's a cosmic warfare. We've all been seduced into it. We've all partnered with evil, if you will, and we're just in this mess. And the end result is we're dead. I like how Eugene Peterson in The Message writes it, and uh, he, he writes it this way. It wasn't so long ago that you were mired in that old stagnant life of sin. You let the world, which doesn't know the first thing about living, tell you how to live. You filled your lungs with polluted unbelief and then exhaled disobedience. We all did it, all of us doing what we felt like doing when we felt like doing it, all of us in the same boat. It's a wonder God didn't lose his temper and do away with the whole lot of us. Makes me think of another old movie. I need to watch some more modern movies, obviously. But it's, it's a well-known movie, The Matrix. And again, I think there was a couple of these back in, in the 90s. But the premise of The Matrix was that this superintelligence, this AI, had taken over the world and, and hijacked the world and were, were using humans to, as an energy source. And to kind of keep the humans alive, they would put them in this advanced simulation game. And the humans that were in it didn't really realize it, but some did. And that was kind of the premise of the movie. And I'm sure many of you have seen The Matrix and, and follow along. I recently learned that this is a real theory, that some very, very smart people believe that all of us are caught in this massive simulation game run by super intelligence. You may think, ah, oh, that's ridiculous. But it's really interesting to, to read about. Um, Talk to me if you want to, to read about it. But I think that there, while I don't agree with that, I think there are vestiges of truth in it. And Paul bears that out in, in this letter. Paul talks about this, uh, to use a, a term from a friend of mine, this dark genius in the world, dark evil genius, this spiritual power that is deceiving us and seducing us to live life apart from God. My scholar friend, Dr. Tim Gombas, who I'll interview at the end of the series, says it like this. He says, Satan and the evil powers direct involvement, have direct involvement in shaping perverted ideologies, mindsets, cultural prejudices, and the infinite variety of other destructive forces that dominate our imaginations. The present evil age is, mad, is a maddeningly complex web of oppression and enslavement. It draws humanity into sinful choices and patterns that result in the domination of Satan and his, and his fallen powers. I think that's well said. Uh, we're in a cosmic battle. I think that's the point that I want you to get. And I know many of you are really interested in this subject, and I don't want us to get too distracted. We'll touch on it throughout the series, and we'll, we'll kind of end on it in chapter six. At some point, I promise you, I'll do a whole series called The Supernatural. I've been kind of planning it for the future. So we'll get there. But for the, for the sake of this passage, we're in this cosmic battle. Evil's there. We're complicit in it. Because of all of this maddening complex situation, we're dead. That's what Paul wants us to know. But let's not be dismayed. Go back to the end of chapter one. Our king is on the throne, and our king reigns above every power in this age and the age to come. So uh, how is our king going to rescue humanity and make all things right? Next part of the story, Paul details in, in four through seven. Uh, every, and we shouldn't, it, we shouldn't be surprised that one through three is there. It's depressing, I get it, but 
Think of every great story. I talked a lot, of about, a lot of them in week one. Every great story starts with a cosmic challenge. It draws us into the story. Like we're dismayed, like, oh, there's no hope. That's exactly what happens here. But in verse seven, perhaps the two greatest words in all of scripture, but God. And I know they're not right beside each other in your translation, but in the Greek text, they're, they're right beside each other, those two words, but God. So we have this terrible news, this incredibly bad news, and then Paul says, but God. Uh, God did not stay at a distance and watch as e- evil hijacked his good creation. God decisively enters the fray. And then Paul talks about, and, and if, you're, if you're following along and don't remember Nathan's words, get out the text, look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Paul talks about how God's character drives his intervention and his decisive actions. Uh, Paul mentions because of his great love, God is driven by love. God who is rich in mercy. Uh, First century readers would have seen that and it would have hyperlinked to the Old Testament where that word mercy is a translation of the Hebrew concept hesed, which uh, essentially means loyal or faithful love, the love that doesn't let us go. It's the one word attributed to God more than any other word. Uh, Ephesians 34, 6 and 7, God reveals himself to Moses and says, I am the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in hesed. Paul's essentially repeating this point, that God is rich in hesed, Uh, Sally Lloyd-Jones, who wrote the Jesus Storybook Bible, she defines this love as the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. I love that. This kind of God that's driven by this kind of love for his creation can't stand by and watch his creation, his good creation be hijacked, watch the people that he shaped and breathed life into, their lives in disarray. He's not going to just step away. He's going to enter the fray. And God acts, Paul tells us, in three ways. Again, follow along in the text here. They're all marked with the word with. God made us alive with Christ, raised us up with Christ, and seated us with Christ. Two of these actions point back to the end of chapter 2, where God attributes the same actions to what he did for Jesus, uh, bringing to life this idea that we are in Christ. Those of us who look to Jesus for life, we are in Christ, and what is true of Jesus is true of us. Paul's central conviction in this passage is that we were dead, and now because of Jesus, we're alive. We were dead, now because of Jesus, we're alive. This, this story, this greater story we're wrapped up in, is a resurrection uh, story. So what is, how did God accomplish this? What, what is the trigger for, for rescuing humanity and making all things right? It's essentially, I'll argue today, one word. And it's the word grace. Grace is our only hope. Again, look how often Paul repeats this concept of grace thus far in the story. Uh, Twice in this passage, he says, for it is by grace you have been saved. Grace is absolutely at the heart of God's plan to save the world and make all things right. Paul opens the letter. Look back to verse chapter 1, verse 1, with grace and peace. Paul tells us in that next section that everything we have been given in Jesus is to the praise of the glorious grace which we are freely given. And then he tells us that we've been lavished with the riches of God's grace. Uh, twice in this passage, by grace you have been saved. In, in verse 7 of this passage, uh, Paul says that God is working in the future so that in the coming ages God might show us the incomparable riches of his grace. Turn all the way to the last verse of Ephesians, Paul talks about grace yet again. 
all throughout the book, grace, 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 grace. What is God's answer to the human plight, the plight in which creation is ensnared in, this prison of performance that we're locked into? The answer is grace. Grace is our only hope. Uh, Grace is a value at New Hope. So if you want to know our values at New Hope, just go to our website and you can look through our six values. Uh, So grace is something that we rally around. We value deeply as a community. It's often misunderstood, though. What is grace? When Paul says that grace is this key component that God uses to rescue the world, what is it? The Greek word is, is charis, and it essentially just means gift. And I think that's a really good translation. It it works in our context. Uh, We don't earn gifts. We don't work for gifts. Uh, A gift is given out of the love and the generosity of the giver to uh, the recipient. The best gifts are things we could never, ever repay. Uh, Paul, in this passage, gives some descriptors of what salvation by gift is or salvation by grace. Paul says that it's not from ourselves. We have nothing to do with it. It's not by works so that no one can boast. Salvation by grace has nothing to do with performance. It has nothing to do with boasting because boasting would deny that we're all equal recipients of God's grace in Jesus. The evil powers know all this. The evil powers do have this dark genius. They know humanity and creation's only hope is grace, is gift. So they're gonna try to do everything they can to move us away from grace back to this warped mindset of performance. Back to the garden, we see this happening. When Adam and Eve are seduced, this, this is our story. It's their story, it's our story as well. The, the, evil, the evil one comes out and seduces them, and the playbook is to try to get themselves to be the central character of the story. That, oh no, God's not the showrunner anymore. You can be the showrunner. You can be God. To put them in a position where, where their hope is dependent on their work so they could be positioned to uh, boast and, and step in the place that is only rightfully held by God. The same thing is happening every day in every way in our context. Uh, so let's talk a, a little more of how this idea of grace plays out in our lives and our community and, and how we misunderstand it and how we struggle with it. One, we absolutely do struggle with it because we have performance-based hearts and we live in a very performance-based world. Just think about the world, in, in the Western side of the world at least, that we live in. Almost everything is, is performance-based. Our, our education is performance-based. Our, our science is performance-based. Um, our jobs are performance-based. Our athletics are performance-based. Um, we could go on and on and on. And sadly, our, our relationships are also performance-based. It's the old adage of, what have you done for me lately? Psychologists tell us that humans have this deep desire to uh, to get what we deserve and deserve what we get. That it's just so naturally part of what it is to be human, and I'll argue that's part of our brokenness. It's part of the prison of performance. I often, in the course of my day, feel like um, I'm that figure skater. That, that I, I walk into a room and like, am, am I a good husband to, to my wife, Corey? Am I, am I a good dad to my daughters? Am, am I a good pastor to all of you? How, how did, I do on the sermon, <laughs> and like that there's this bank of judges that are holding up the number, and either I'm crushed or I'm dismayed. This is prison. It's a horrifying way to live. It's not how we were meant to live. 
Um, the, the chief problem is we bring this performance-based mindset to our most important relationship, and that's our relationship with God. Uh, the Barna Group uh, did some studies that revealed that half of Christians feel it is possible to earn God's favor. More than half view Christianity as a list of rules to be followed, and nearly 70% think that saying God helps those who help themselves is in the Bible. That's all deeply performance mindset, and it's antithetical to the gospel of grace. It just shows how warped our hearts are and, and the power of the evil forces in this world. They're constantly trying to move us away from God's grace back to a performance mindset, hijacking God's plan to redeem the world. Uh, Paul is clearly telling us, by grace we are saved. It is, it is not from our own efforts. There, there's nothing we can contribute to it. But in the deepest recesses of our heart, if we're honest with one another, we don't like that. We, we sit in church and we look down the aisle and we think, we never say this out loud, but we think, God's got to love me a little more than that bum down the road, or, or whoever we put in that place. That's just the brokenness of our heart. The radical hope of Ephesians 2, this passage that we read today, is that grace sets us free from the prison of performance. This is absolutely part of my journey and story. I prayed the prayer of salvation while I was very young, and, and I think I understood what I was saying, but I didn't understand grace. And I grew up in churches that, that had a performance-based mentality. So I had this weird hybrid of kind of knowing some core components of the gospel that were true, but also living in this world that was very performance-based, and it absolutely warped my faith. And I think whenever we're combining God's grace with, with our own efforts, it ends in, in a train wreck. And that was my life. When, when I was uh, middle teens, middle high school, my spiritual journey was derailed. And I have to take responsibility for that too. Um, but I left faith for a number of years because it simply wasn't working. And it'll never work when we co-mingle our own righteousness and our own works with God's grace. Praise God, one of, the, one of the, the, the biggest gifts in my journey is that in my, late, in my early 20s, uh, several people who had a deep heart and affection for me, I got to trust that God sent them, along with uh, the writings of Philip Yancey and Brendan Manning, the music of Rich Mullins, many other factors, God in his chesed love for me, his love that doesn't let go, tracked me down. And I spent a couple years learning about the revolutionary freedom of God's grace. Uh, Philip Yancey in What's So Amazing About Grace, which if you want to dig deep into this topic, I highly recommend this book. He defines grace this way. Grace means there is nothing we can do to make God love us more, and there's nothing we can do to make God love us less. How do you feel about that? I think it's, I think it's a brilliant definition of grace. Uh, because it absolutely removes our performance from the equation. God loves you. God loves me right now. And there's nothing we can do to increase it or decrease it. That's like, wow. For people that, that are exhausted with the performance-based mindset, that's absolutely liberating. For those of us who may still be clinging to wanting to play a role in our own salvation and wanting to be able to boast it's, it's scandalous. We really, really struggle with it. Um, I like to say that, that uh, for those of us who think we can earn a, a right relationship with God, that definition is offensive. For those of us who realize we can't, it's, 
it's amazing. It's amazing grace. Uh, we live in this world that is enmeshed in this prison of performance, and grace comes in and literally unlocks the door and sets us free. This is what Paul wants us to know. But grace isn't just for our past. It isn't just for our present. Grace is also uh, for, for our performance. Grace, we, we have, we have a, a woefully misconstrued idea of grace. If we think grace saves us from our brokenness and from the forces of evil just to sit around on the couch and do nothing. We absolutely don't understand how grace operates. And we see this at the end of the passage in verse 10. Paul tells us that we were saved by grace to become, become God's handiwork created in, in Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared for us to do. This word uh, handiwork in the Greek is poema. And it's an artistic word. It's, from, it's the word we get our word for poetry from. It was used in the Bible to talk about uh, different things that artists would create. It was used uh, for God himself working with clay, us being the clay and God being the master potter. Uh, some of you may know that my wife is a, is a master potter, so I've had the occasion over our 20-plus years of marriage to watch her many times throw pots on the wheel and create. And I can't help but think about this idea that each of us in God's hands, God by grace, God didn't just save us by grace, that God by grace is creating us and renewing us and gifting us to enter into the greater story, to participate not in our work, but in his good work of making all things right. Uh, think of it like this. Uh, we're not saved by work, but we are saved to work. Uh, or I, I could even simplify it even more. Grace works. Grace, properly understood, entering into our lives, gifts us with the opportunity to enter into God's uh, good work. Uh, Paul says this as much to, to Titus. Uh, I love these verses. And this sets aside this misnomer that grace only operates us by saving us just to sit around and do nothing. That's not what Paul says to Titus, who is a young pastor. This is what Paul says. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us, grace teaches us, to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Grace doesn't just save us. Grace empowers us to enter into God's good work. And again, back to Genesis 1, this fits perfectly with God's original intent. If you remember back to Genesis 1, God's creating on each day, and each time he creates artisan's words, he says it is good. And then he creates humanity, he says it's very good. And then the mission he gives his humanity, created, were created in his image, is to steward his good work, to enter into his good creation, and to make it flourish, and to make it fruitful. But then the evil one comes in and we choose to follow and the whole deal gets hijacked and broken. And at that point, God chooses to launch this worldwide restoration movement where he's gonna come in and make all things right, where he enters the fray and he offers us a path to once again be made right with him and once again re-enter into what is our original created intent to steward and participate in God's good work. How does he do this? Grace. Grace is our only hope.
What does it look like uh, for, for us to follow Jesus and to, uh, to be saved by grace and empowered by grace to participate in God's work? Is there a word we might give that type of person? I was pondering that this week, and I think there is. I think I would say the word is graceful. That type of person is graceful or literally full of grace. It's interesting that that's one of the words used to describe Jesus, that he was full of grace. And then I got to thinking, like, what's the, what's the connection between grateful and graceful? I think there absolutely is a vital connection. I would say it like this, to be grateful is to be graceful. As we express gratitude, we become full of grace. So I think as we, if we want to be people that understand grace as the hope of the world, have our lives filled with grace so that we're God's graceful people, we will enter into the practice of gratitude. And it's, it's, it's no surprise that the New Testament is filled with commands to express gratitude, filled with commands not to be uh, sitting back and saying, I need this and I deserve this and I want to earn this, but to sit back and say, what are the gifts that God has given us? Because when we express gratitude, we're not expressing thanks for things we've earned. We're expressing thanks for things that have been given. Uh, some of you folks coming from Mount Scott may know this. A lot of New Hope folks that have been around uh, do know this, that my favorite saying is, is all is grace. I end a lot of my letters with that and uh, my text with that. When we first moved into to the, the old building at New Hope, my wife stenciled it up in the lobby. I like it because it kind of just sums up what I think is, is one of the most truthful things about life that everything good and beautiful and true that's, that's praiseworthy and, and worth being grateful for is a gift. James, the brother of Jesus, said that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down uh, from our Father above. All is grace. And I think a practice in my life that is I seek to become a more graceful person, and I hope that that's something that we would all seek, to look around our lives and acknowledge the gifts, to acknowledge that grace is our only hope forward out of this prison of performance, is to have a practice of, of noting God's gifts in our life. One of the things I've done for the last couple of years is every, almost every night, I, I just have a little note on my phone and I reflect through my day and I name the gifts. And I, and I try to do a thousand per year and it's not difficult, it's like three a day and it's really easy to think, and it's a joy to think back through my day because a lot of times I'm going to bed disgruntled or frustrated or sad for whatever reason, I'm self-centered and it reorients my life around the good things that day that God has given me that are gifts. Another uh, thing that I've recommended that some of you may remember and some of you may, may have never heard is, a, is an app called Lectio 365. I use it almost every day. A lot of our staff uh, use it. And it's uh, little things you can read or listen to that prompt you to pray, that give you a little bit of scripture, give you some insights. It's really wonderfully done from our friends at 24-7 Prayer. Highly recommended. They just launched, they had morning prayers, they just launched night prayers. And they're incredible read by, you know, wonderfully, beautifully British accents, and, you, and they're reading scripture, and it, I can just feel my blood pressure drop at night when I'm listening. But one of the things they do every single night is take us through the ancient prayer of examine. And the prayer of examine is causing us to reflect back on our day, to reflect on moments that, that grace has fallen upon our lives, and to stop and see it and to thank God. That practice, practicing gratitude, naming the gifts in our lives reminds us that all is grace and it cultivates a gracefulness in our lives. 
So as we come to our relationship with God, we're kind of entering in the script of the story. We're confronted with the fact that we have performance-based hearts and we live in a performance-based world and we're in this cosmic battle trying to draw us back into that mindset all the time. And Paul wants us to see that if we apply that mindset to our relationship with God, we're doomed. It doesn't work. Paul wants us to see that, that grace is at the heart of the story, that grace is the key component that God is using to set us free from the prison of performance, to not only make us right with God, but to invite us into a greater story where we get to participate with God in making all things right, in God's good creation. That is the offer Paul puts forward to us today. I want to close by reading this quote that's one of my favorite quotes of all time. I mentioned Brennan Manning before and the key role that his writings played in taking me out of the prison of performance mindset and out of the dead man walking mindset and revitalizing and renewing my walk with the Lord, teaching me what grace is. And so let me uh, close the message by leaving you with, with his words. Brennan writes this, and this is from his memoir called All is Grace. He says, my message, unchanged for more than 50 years, is this. God loves you unconditionally, as you are and not as you should be, because nobody is as they should be. Isn't that great? It is the message of grace, a grace that pays the eager beaver who works all day long the same wages as the grinning drunk who shows up at 10 till 5. A grace that hikes up the robe and runs breakneck toward the prodigal, reeking of sin, and wraps him up and decides to throw a party, no ifs, ands, or buts. This grace is indiscriminate compassion. It works without asking anything of us. Grace is sufficient, even though we huff and puff with all our might to try to find something or someone it cannot cover. Grace is enough. Jesus is enough. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for this, this crystal clear revelation from Paul that our only hope is grace, that, that any pathway that involves our own working to make things right with God is going to end in despair and heartache. It just won't work. But that God, you enter into the fray, you put on flesh, you bear and break the power of sin and death, and you offer us by grace the gift of life. And not only the gift of life, God, but an invitation to enter into a greater story, an invitation to, as we were originally envisioned, to partner with you and participate with you in making all things right, in stewarding your good creation, God. I pray that, that, that our church, New Hope, would understand uh, one of our key values, uh, grace, that we'd understand in such a way they would reshape how we see you and how we see one another and how we see our call upon this world. Thank you, God, uh, for your grace. Uh, we are so grateful. We pray this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.